Napoleon is going to be kind of the the one who sweeps in after the revolution has been relatively unsuccessful for the first portion because of the radical phase of the revolution. Uh, then you have a period called the Thermidorian reaction, where it's almost a very moderate version of the Republic. Uh, it's not overly successful. It's just kind of a meh period in French history for from about 1795 to about 1799. Uh, the, the French government is just kind of surviving, uh, mostly because they're still fighting external forces outside of Europe. They're still dealing with Britain. They're still dealing with Austria uh, and Prussia. And so they, they try to create a sense of normalcy after the period of the radical revolution and the radical phase. We don't have a lot of time to go in detail with the Thermid Thermidorian reaction, which is fine. Um, but Napoleon becomes the next best thing once he becomes a consul. Now, eventually, I think by around 17... Uh, 96, 7, 8, they start going to a, uh, a form of government called the consul system where they have a couple of people in charge. It's almost like having multiple presidents, which I'm sure would sound kind of ridiculous in a way because you have singular rulers with that have to share power, which is obviously almost something like Montesquieu would say where you have this separation of powers. But just imagine in our system, if you took a couple of Democrats and a Republican and said, you guys got to just decide things together. Now, obviously, that might actually be a good thing, but um, it, it probably wouldn't be all that successful, or at the very least, it would be difficult to get things done. And it is. Um, by the time Napoleon comes in as the first consul in 99, he will very quickly just kind of make himself a singular ruler um, because he's just the, the most dominant force. Now, as a young person, this is one of the things that Napoleon is able to do. Again, the trend with him is that he's all about taking advantage of opportunities. The French Revolution was the perfect opportunity for someone like Napoleon. He comes from a relatively obscure background. He joins the military at a very young age. And what, what was one of the key components of the French military back then? What, what changed during the revolution that gave Napoleon opportunity? Yeah, they started the system of levee en masse, en, en masse, which is the army of the people. And the army of the people was merit-based. So because it was merit-based, it allowed someone like Napoleon, who otherwise would have probably never had the opportunity to become a general, to slowly make his way up the military ranks to the point where he becomes a cult hero, he becomes... Uh, defender of the Republic. Now, one of the things that becomes a trend with Napoleon is that he has, for lack of a better term, it's like he, the papers just started on his side and never stopped being on his side. Um, so it's like he had just the best publicists in the world. Um, and the papers really kept him in power. They start out, one of the first time that he's seen on a national level, he's known as defender of the Republic. Um, and that happens in 1795. There's a, an uprising by a royalist rebel group that tries to take over the National Convention. Now, this was a relatively easy thing for Levé en masse to take care of, but Napoleon is in charge. He is 
after this quoted as being defender of the Republic in the papers. And so it makes him into a bit of a cult hero. Yes. Yes. Well, remember that Napoleon thought of himself as protecting the ideas of the Enlightenment. It's just ironic that he does it through a very authoritarian version of things, right? Exactly. And um, I think that most, and this becomes a trend of the French Revolution, is that if even if it's Robespierre or it's Napoleon, it really doesn't matter. Wherever you started in your ideologies, many of those people eventually became something that was very different than they had initially intended or wanted to be. Um, now, we don't know what Napoleon ever wanted to be. But again, his opportunity allowed him to eventually become a very authoritarian ruler of France. Um, so he becomes consistently a very strong, uh, almost an identity of the revolution because he's defending the revolution. He's defending the ideals of the revolution. And at times, even when he was ruler, singular ruler of France, he's doing enlightenment type ideologies. And so a lot of people in France see him as the savior of France in many times. Now, there's a document that you're going to read um, that there's two documents that you're reading this week for your close reading. One of them is from Napoleon. And it's kind of awkward actually reading it because some of it's in the third person. Um, but he's going to be talking about how he is establishing France in a way that really cultivates the positives of the revolution, but also puts down the negative. So he's, he declares himself kind of the savior of France. And there's a lot of people that agree with him. And then there's a lot of people that disagree with him. And, and that's very evident by the time you get to the 100 days, because when he gets exiled, when, he, when he's brought back into France, some people are excited, some people are scared, some people are happy. It, it just depends on who you were. Um, he's a very polarizing figure in French history for probably good reason. Now, as far as uh, this slide, all you really need is this one because I'm going to go over the other stuff. Um, but it is true that most of his victories are over-publicized and a lot of his defeat is very under-publicized. So there, there was actually a period where Napoleon's army is defeated in Africa um, and he doesn't really get credit for the defeat because he left. Because he had the opportunity to go back to France and become first consul. So he leaves and then his army loses. Um, now, he doesn't really ever get credited with that. But every time he had victories, it was his praises were sung throughout France. So that is going to be a trend with a lot of the early movement around him. Now, what is a coup d'etat? Yeah, there's a really good um, example in history actually commemorated by William Shakespeare. Uh, whose coup d'etat did we learn about through Shakespeare? And, he, and at the end of the play, he says something like, et tu brute? Oh, Caesar. Yeah, Caesar, right? So the whole concept of a, a coup d'etat is where you have a sudden shift from one power structure to a different power structure. And the death of Caesar is a good example where they're like eliminating Caesar. They're going to a new system. Um, and it's immediate. That's what Napoleon will do, is a coup d'etat, where he's immediately in charge of everything. Um, now, 
As far as his political career is concerned, he starts out as first consul in 1799. By the time he gets to 1804, he will crown himself king and become the emperor of France. He will also crown himself king in front of the Pope, which is a very strong move because the Pope is supposed to crown you, mostly because kings are supposed to derive their power from God. And so if you're deriving your power from God, the Pope crowning you king makes sense. Napoleon shows the crown to the Pope and then crowns himself king. Um, Now, technically, he had also just kidnapped the Pope, so the Pope didn't exactly love him. Uh, But that's neither here nor there. We'll talk about Napoleon kidnapping people. He, he likes to do that, especially uh, two specific people. Toussaint Louverture, which is a slave leader, uh, uh, the people that he, he led the Haitian independence movement. He kidnapped him, and then he also kidnapped uh, the Pope. Well, put him under house arrest. Very similar. What's that? Reason? Um, he needed the Pope for some things. He needed the Pope to do what he told him to do, so he put him under house arrest so he didn't get Henri and try to like raise an army or something like that. And then ironically, Napoleon, since he was taking over Europe, actually put his two-year-old son as the king of Rome just to spite the Pope because he thought it was funny. Good times. He's like, my two-year-old can rule better than you. Which is, I guess, a bit of a weird flex, but, you know. Um, Now, He will get exiled in 1814. He'll have 100 days where he comes back and then he'll get exiled again. He does, and I'm going to give you a list of things that he does while he's in power. And if you're writing the essay about him being an enlightened despot, these are things that you need to have in your essay um, because they're evidence, okay? Now, one of the first things that he does is he establishes the Banque de France, which basically means the Bank of France, because France had a disaster of an economy. Um, So he reestablishes a new Bank of France he tries to raise capital through a, a variety of ways. One of the things that the Enlightenment thinking within the French Revolution forced, didn't force, but it, the, the Republic decided to outlaw slavery in the colonies. Napoleon realized very quickly that that actually heavily reduced the amount of money that they were making from the colonies. So Napoleon reinstates slavery so that he can continue to make uh, money. This will have a bit of an effect as far as Haiti pushing for their independence, as well as other colonial um, holdings. But again, Napoleon is trying to raise capital because he's got the idea that he's going to probably take over Europe, which he will, um, and then eventually have an issue with Russia, which we'll talk about. But he's going to try to create capital, which is what they need. Secondly, he creates the concordat. Now, the, the word concordat means agreement. So I would, in your notes, just put concordat equals agreement. And this is an agreement. You don't need all of this, by the way. You don't need that. Um, I would do this. The concordat was an agreement with the Catholic Church. And what it does is it helps him reconsolidate France, especially the people in the countryside that saw the Parisian radical revolution as being a movement away from the traditional kind of Catholic church that had been a dominant force in French history for a long period of time. So this allows him to kind of get the countryside back on his side, uh, which was smart for sure. 
Uh, so make sure to just have the second part as intent was to use the clergy to prop up his regime. That's true. And then the thing that the Concordat did was it declares Catholicism as the religion of the majority of Frenchmen. That's the way that it's written. Uh, eventually, Pope Pius VII will somewhat just renege on the agreement because he realizes very quickly that Napoleon is going to be a bit domineering and still do exactly what he wants rather than allow the Pope to do things. And so, in turn, Napoleon um, kidnaps the Pope. Good times. Now, I would just make sure to have that part. You probably don't need all of these points. You could probably shorten it down to what I said. It declares uh, Catholicism the religion of, the, of all Frenchmen, and it also makes Pope Pius VII under the control of Napoleon because he essentially puts him under house arrest. The other thing he does is creates the Lycee system. Now, the Lycee system, that, that word Lycee is school. Um, what it does, I can spell, uh, what it does is it allows people of possibly lower birth, meaning non-nobles, to actually gain access to university through merit. So this system is also very merit-based. And this is very much like the army, right? It gives opportunity for people that generally had not had opportunity before. So again, if you're writing about this from an enlightenment perspective, this is definitely an enlightenment example. The goal, of course, was to train future bureaucrats. What are bureaucrats? Government officials. So it was an opportunity to train the people that would eventually take over components of the government, uh, which is far more successful than just having, oh, you're an aristocrat, you're a noble, you should, you know, you know this person, you know that person, so you're going to be in charge of this. Instead, you train someone, you allow them to demonstrate their value. And if they're valuable enough, you appoint them as part of your government system to make your system better. So uh, this is definitely much more merit-based than before. The other thing is he starts to um, specifically target the military as a component that needs to be honored. Um, so he does establish the Legion of Honor, Honor in 1802, which will allow people to come around and, and and kind of create that early patriotism, that early nationalism, which I realize that it is very early for nationalism. Technically, the age of nationalism isn't until the second part of the 1800s. But this is a bit of a precursor of that early nationalism. The reason that we don't really say this is when nationalism started in Europe is because Napoleon will eventually lose. And the age of conservatism is meant to actually somewhat crush some of that nationalism that had popped up, um, as well as kind of reestablish a more conservative order. And then later, the reaction to that conservative order is going to kind of be that nationalism that's going to happen in the second part of the 1900s. The other thing he does is Napoleonic Code. Uh, this will create a constitution that, like his quote said, is short and pretty vague. It does allow for some uh, property rights, which obviously is very enlightenment-based as well. Who was the person that said life, liberty, and property? Robespierre. Locke. Um, and so when Locke said life, liberty, and property, that is one thing that is very strongly enlightenment-based. So him 
protecting property and, ha and giving certain property rights is very much a component of the Enlightenment. Uh, what does the term plebiscite mean? Sort of like a document kind of. It means to vote. So he's giving the vote to people, which allows for at least the idea that you're participating in the government, even though most of his votes were pretty much irrelevant. Um, but it gives people, again, I, what I like about his quotes is that many of the things he did really are demonstrated in what he says. When he says a leader is a dealer in hope, when you give someone the vote, you're giving them hope that they are contributing to the government, even if you don't care what they say in their vote. Um, and it, it's kind of ironic that most authoritarian leaders still allow for voting. But the reason that they do that is because it, it gives them at least the illusion that you are participating, even if the vote comes out drastically weird. Um, most authoritarian leaders win with like 90 something percent of the vote. Like no one's that popular. I, I don't care who you are. Nobody gets 90 percent of the vote any anytime ever. Um, but, you know, even Saddam Hussein was getting, you know, in the 95 percent or more percent of the vote in Iraq. Now, is that realistic when you're killing the Kurds consistently in your country and uh, about a third of your country hates you? Probably not. Uh, but, you know, you fudge the numbers and it's all good, right? Um, now, this is the guy that gets a bit kidnapped by Napoleon because he's starting problems in Haiti. Uh, and that's Toussaint Louverture, um, who quotes a lot of the Enlightenment uh, thinkers as well in his push for Haitian independence, um, which goes on from 1792 to 1804, which I'm sure my drawing isn't matching up because my slides aren't matching up on my iPad, but I tried. Yes? I've actually read sure and it's very interesting how it ended up resembling the french revolution mm -hmm. in a lot of ways not just like the initial ideals of it but how it translated to just complete senseless violence yeah for sure what what we found in most uh revolutions is that they they do tend to have a lot of similarities uh in the way that they are operate and the way that they the outcomes um at the end are um the other thing that he has to deal with is he has to raise some money so he sells us, meaning the U.S., the Louisiana Purchase, which does anyone know why we canceled our debt for the American Revolution with France? Crickets. Um, so they killed the king. And technically, the king was who we had the agreement with. And so... <coughs> We, we were like, well, who do we pay back? Um, so we didn't. And instead, we bought Louisiana for 15 mil, which is a pretty solid acquisition, to be fair, because it's pennies on the acre. But um, it raises capital for Napoleon. So in a way, it's a win. Obviously, in the long term, the French would have benefited from probably having that in the long term. But in the short term, Napoleon had other goals in mind. Uh, which I'm going to talk to you about here uh, right now anyway. So for this slide, what I would do is I would just write down the goal. And then I'm going to tell you what these bottom bullets mean so that you can write down a, a single bullet underneath it. So the goal of the continental system was to isolate Britain and promote Napoleon as the master of Europe. 
Now, it does that, but Britain is going to be a significant problem. The reason that Britain is powerful at this time is what? What is happening in Britain that the rest of Europe is kind of lagging behind? Well, they got this super big colonial empire. They do. And they are in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. And so Britain is going through what they will eventually call be called as the workshop of the world because they are making goods and services for everybody. Um, they had already had the textile revolution, so people are mostly buying British clothing. Um, they're also going to start buying British goods because the British are making even more things with the factories and whatnot. Napoleon is going to try to isolate Britain, establish a continental system where just the continent deals with itself, and then Britain has to just sell to their colonies. Now, the British will hate Napoleon and vice versa. They never have a good relationship. Um, really, the the one group that keeps beating Napoleon no matter what is the British. So Napoleon really does not like them very much. But uh, the second thing that I want you to write down other than isolating Britain is that this will try to establish a self-sustainable continent excluding Britain completely. So it, the continent will be self-sustainable. And that's his goal. Now, again, he's also taking over the continent. And so he and he's putting a bunch of his uh, nephews and uh, uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters in power of different places, calling them kings and queens and whatnot. And when he's doing that, which we'll talk about the Peninsular War later, while he's doing that, it's like nepotism on overdrive. Um, he is trying to create a, an economic system that, that purely benefits France, right? So this is almost like a recreation of mercantilism in a way, right? You're, you're isolating Britain. You're not allowed to, allowing them to trade in Europe. So it's a very competitive form of economics. And you're also trying to make France the dominant feature so that, they're, so that everyone else is trying to buy French goods. Um, so it, it should look something like this when he's done. You draw this nice little line around the outside of Europe. And so this group has to sell with France and specifically they benefit, they get cut off. Now, it doesn't work. Does anyone know why he eventually invades Russia? The Russians, even though they met with Napoleon a couple of times and promised, promised to not sell stuff to the British, they keep selling grain to the British. And so Napoleon's like, that's it. Enough times I'm going to invade you. And then he does. He gets his army all the way over here. Goes in with 400K, comes back with 10K. So it's a bit of a oopsie. Now, the British will uh, paint. This is probably one of my favorite British cartoons. This is Napoleon right here as the baby or spawn of Satan, um, which is kind of how the British saw Napoleon. They quite hated him, uh, literally. Remember how I told you Jacques-Louis David would be the one who paints all the important stuff? So... This is the consecration of the Emperor Napoleon and the Empress Josephine. Does anyone want to guess how big this mural is? I say mural because it is a big mural type painting. It's 20 by 30. So it is, if you take my back wall and stand it like this and then make it wider, it's that big. So it's about 20 feet tall by 30 feet wide. That's really big, yes. Um, now, this particular piece is saying quite a bit. Now, first of all, a close-up here shows us that Napoleon, 
even though he's showing the crown to the Pope, is crowning himself Emperor of France, um, which is a bit of a bold statement, to say the least. Now, after he crowns himself king, a, a couple years later, in 1807, he has to divorce his wife. Does anyone know why he divorces his wife? Some random history history knowledge? No? All right, we'll read their statements so that we get a little context. Napoleon says, far from ever finding complaint, I can to the contrary only congratulate myself on the devotion and tenderness of my beloved wife. She has adorned 13 years of my life. The memory will always remain engraved on my heart. So cute. Josephine says, with the permission of our august and dear husband, I must declare that having no hope of bearing children who would fulfill the needs of his policies and interests in France, I am pleased to offer the greatest proof of attachment ever given on this earth. Uh, Yes, ever offered on this earth. She was barren, so she couldn't have kids. Um, It allowed Napoleon to marry, and we know who he marries after Josephine. If you're French and you're trying to make an alliance with someone, who do you think you marry? Starts with an H. A Habsburg. Yes, so you hear, but you marry a Habsburg. So he marries Marie Louise of Austria, who is the daughter of Joseph of Austria. And um, what's ironic is that eventually he he thought that Joseph would actually back him. He doesn't. he eventually will join the, the League of Nations against him and will uh, defeat Napoleon. But uh, they will have a baby. And the baby is, of course, got to have the best name of all time because he's Napoleon's kid. And I'm going to show you a bit of a man baby here. So you got the man child. And his, uh, Napole- he's going to be known as Napoleon Francis Joseph Charles, which I think he just took Napoleon and then added as many kings as he could remember on the back of his name. So he's Napoleon Francis Joseph Charles. Yes. (laughs) Now, ironically, he will not rule France, but um, he will be the king of Rome for a bit because, you know, the Pope can't be the king of Rome while Napoleon's in charge. And then, like, Napoleon's, like, grandnephew. Yes, his grandnephew will eventually become the um, king of uh, France when, well, president slash, yeah. That whole, like, period of French history, it's like some weird fan fiction. I'm pretty sure, like, 2,000 years <laughs> from now, people are going to question if that actually ever happened. It is pretty funny, though. It, and quite honestly, it's it's a bit of a disaster. It's not as bad as the radical phase of the revolution, but you're right. It, it is a weird period. We'll get into that later, actually, uh, when we get to the age of nationalism, because there's a couple of wars that the French lose in. Um, that, that's going to be key there. Um, like I said earlier, and we're going to end on this slide because I'm going to finish the Peninsular War stuff later. Um, he puts all of his king, his uh, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, sons in charge of, all over Rome or all over Europe. Um, and of course, uh, does this one here to mess with the Pope. Um, but the, the person that has the biggest problems is this guy. Uh, because the Spanish are a bit ornery and they don't really like the idea of Napoleon taking them over. And so that, that becomes the real drain on Napoleon is the Peninsular War. Um, it's not because they couldn't beat Spain. It's that they, they couldn't beat the insurgents within Spain, which means that even though they kind of took control of Spain, 
they kept having guerrilla warfighters that kept just messing with them over time. And it just became a consistent drain on Napoleon. Um, and then eventually he'll invade Russia and that's its own problem. So we'll stop there for now. Um, we'll finish up with Napoleon later and uh, we'll get into the conservative reaction to Napoleon uh, going forward. Uh, yesterday we talked a little bit about how Napoleon and his family become kind of the ruling family of Europe, mostly through the doing of nepotism and whatnot. Uh, anytime you put your two-year-old child as the king of Rome, you know you're doing something nepotistically, right? Um, but when we go forward, one of the significant issues that Napoleon will start having is with insurgency within the continent. So a specific example of that is the Peninsular War. Um, and for Napoleon, Spain becomes a problem. Uh, Spain has decided that it's going to not really accept the rule of Napoleon or Joseph, who was in charge of Spain at the time, and instead create guerrilla warfare that they have to deal with for the foreseeable future. Um, now, the reason that guerrilla warfare tends to work is that it's not meant to beat you. It's not meant to actually fight you on an even playing field. It's just meant to annoy you enough to when you, you eventually go away. Um, groups that generally fight using guerrilla warfare are groups that have some pretty strong nationalism, meaning that they believe in their own country and their own autonomy. They generally uh, will realize that they do not have a fair fight with you. So one of the groups in history that really has to deal with guerrilla warfare, at least to start with, with, was the Romans. Like no one fought the Roman army head on. Very rarely were they fought head on because you lost. So instead, you annoyed the Roman army. Uh, that The Romans were really good at, you know, nice, neat lines and they had the roads. So they're marching on their roads. And one of the ways that you actually saw many barbarians, barbarians, uh, fight the Romans was they would, you know, hide in the, in the bushes next to the road. Um, they would jump out of the bush, cut a Roman's Achilles heel uh, and run away. Now, you can't walk if you don't have an Achilles. Uh, and so it was a way of annoying the Romans. Now, did, were you able to defeat them by doing that? No. But could you be annoying enough to where they're like, why are we here? Yeah, over time, sure. And, and really, that's what's happening to Napoleon in Spain. Um, the, the United States has dealt with this also. Uh, the United States is a uh, country today that really military wise we we can't be matched we have a military that spends 20 times the amount of pretty much anyone else uh it, it becomes very difficult for anyone to try to fight us head on so rather people tend to fight us by just annoying us enough to where it's like well eventually you'll leave um you look at the vietnam war and it's a really good example the vietnam war for us was not a problem fighting the north vietnamese the problem was the Viet Cong. Because we didn't know who they were. They didn't wear uniforms. It, they could have come out of anywhere. And they had this huge elaborate tunnel system throughout South Vietnam to where you could, be, you could watch someone walking down the street carrying a basket of clothes on their head to go wash them in the river. They pull a grenade out there, throw it at you, and then jump in a hole. You never see them again. And you're like, well, who are we fighting? We don't know. They all look like they're the group that we're protecting. And so it became a significant issue for us because... We couldn't identify our enemy. 
And that's what guerrilla warfare is meant to do. It's meant to be annoying to where it's like, okay, what are we doing? What's the purpose? Um, it forces you to kind of clarify things. Now, for us in this class, one of the things that I think is important is that once you get to the, the significant wars like World War I, World War II, a lot of these big countries are going to fight each other head on to their own detriment because so many people die. And trench warfare is the worst ever. But the groups that are going to be the smaller kind of pocketed nationalism are really the significant issue in history. Um, you know, your, your Balkan region, uh, your, the, those like small little nationalist groups that you're like, what do we, you know, who do they go with? Which empire should they fit in? And they're just like, none. Like, we'll just take our own independence would be nice. Um, it, it, those become the groups that are really significantly an issue. Uh, the, the groups that are really the bigger groups either keep each other in check uh, or they will fight each other, lose a lot of people, and eventually decide fighting each other is a bad idea. Um, but it, it takes some time. Now, one of the other issues that Napoleon will face, other than the Peninsular War in Spain and, and uh, that region, is Russia. Russia does uh, has a moment where they actually meet with Napoleon a couple of different times, and Napoleon tries to convince them to stop selling grain to the British because he's trying to create this continental system. The British are seen as a dominant feature in Europe, but also the world at this time, because Britain is not only has a large trade network throughout the world, um, they also are going through the agricultural and industrial revolution by this time, and they're ahead of everybody else by 20 or 30 years of technology. And because of that, they become dubbed as that, na I think Napoleon might have even been the one who called them that nation of shopkeepers. But it, it was this concept that they just out-industried everybody and was able to sell goods all over the place because Britain had the cheapest goods, the best goods, but the cheapest goods as well. So you're buying British goods because it was just smart. It gave you the opportunity to to get what no one else could produce. And so Napoleon is trying to cut them off. And instead of allowing Britain to continue that way, Napoleon is trying to replace Britain as the new kind of economic dominant feature of Europe. So he tries a continental system to, to isolate them. In that process, Russia keeps selling grain to Britain, even though they said they wouldn't and whatnot. Uh, so Napoleon decides he's going to teach Russia a lesson by invading them. And Russia does what Russia does best, and that's burn everything and run away. Um, and that's what we call scorched earth policy. So I would make sure to have this uh, scorched earth policy note there at the bottom. Um, at this time, this is still pre-railroad, at least from a um, structural standpoint. There's not enough rail built. There's not rail built yet to where you could supply your troops well. Instead, you had to su supply your troops from more traditional means, meaning horse and buggy. Um, and if you're doing that and you got half a million troops or more, Napoleon's having to supply a lot of people with food. And the Russians know this. And so the Russians, again, say, well, if, if we're going to fight a war against someone who's probably a better army than we have, the best way to fight them is to make it a war of attrition to where the French have to try to resupply their troops with no food. So we'll burn all the food. We'll kill all the livestock. 
will make it really hard for you to resupply your troops. So you're gonna, by the time you fight us, you're gonna be starving, and then eventually you realize that winter is coming. So that's gonna be a significant issue also. And of course, the, the Russians have uh, an ice king and dragons as well, I'm sure. Of course, As all good um, Russians should have. Now, by the time Napoleon gets deep into Russian territory, they think, okay, well, the Russians are going to have to, at some point, counterattack. And we think it's probably going to be Moscow because, you know, you wouldn't abandon Moscow. And so they show up in Moscow and guess what the Russians did? Burned it to the ground. And they were like, what now? Um, the, the French are pretty demoralized by this because you got to imagine you've been marching for a really long time. You finally get to where you think, okay, we're finally going to end this battle with Russia. We'll finally fight them. And the Russians have, again, just abandoned the city and burned it to the ground. And you're thinking, this is awful. Um, we don't know when we're going to fight them. They won't fight us. We're hungry. Uh, we're trying to deal with the fact that we know winter is coming. Um, and in Russia, winter's a bit cold. Um, and you're not used to that. French climate is significantly different than a climate in Eastern Europe, let alone Russia. Uh, so th this is a problem. Now, I, I put this slide in here for you because this is kind of the, the significant AP Euro stuff that you need to know. First of all, you need to know that the Russian czar is doing this because he's, he's or they're doing this to him because he stopped selling grain to the British. Sorry, my slide is different than yours. Um, Sorry for the foreshadowing on Hitler. I'll talk about that in a second here. You do need to know scorched earth policy, so you need to know what that is and how they used it. The reason I put Hitler was an idiot on this slide, I think I can still say that because um, I think he's still frowned upon. Um, but Hitler was an idiot, and quite honestly, the world is better for it. He thought he was smarter than his generals, which, by the way, was a bad idea in the first place. But it, if you ever read Mein Kampf, which I don't recommend, um, it, it definitely does talk about how Germany was in a place not only because of the rest of Europe and, and the Treaty of Versailles and all that kind of stuff, but he also lays a lot of blame on the German generals for World War I and things like that. Hitler was nothing more than a foot soldier, <laughs> in World War I, but he thought he knew more than his generals. And th so throughout World War II, he will make decisions that are actually really poor because he doesn't really understand military, but he thinks he does. And he thinks he knows better than his generals, which he does not. To be honest, the German generals were probably the best well-trained generals in the world, well, in World War I and II. You say, well, why'd they lose World War I so badly? Because they were surrounded by the world in World War I, and their friends were awful. Uh, Austria and the Austrian Empire and the Ottoman Empire were basically falling apart. Um, so it, it became Germany versus the world at one point, which is not great. And in the second war, it's a bit more fair. It's Germany and Japan versus the world. Um, now, they did have Italy, but again, they didn't do much. And they, they, did, they did look good, but that's about it. Um, so what you see with Hitler, and the reason that I have this on here is because Hitler will make a lot of the same mistakes that Napoleon made. And ironically, after, after he went and visited Napoleon's tomb, uh, you know, he goes and takes over Paris. He shuts down the streets of Paris. He joyrides Paris in an open car uh, by himself, which is kind of cool. 
And then the Parisians, of course, being the Parisians that they are, decided to go cut the lift for uh, the Eiffel Tower so he couldn't get up the Eiffel Tower without walking, which I think is absolutely awesome because walking the Eiffel Tower is the worst. Um, but Hitler, after that, goes and meet or goes to Napoleon's tomb. And I can only imagine, because I don't know for sure, that he's sitting there in Napoleon's tomb going, don't worry, Napoleon, I got this. And then he invades Russia and does the exact same thing that Napoleon did. Um, and that's, you know, invade in summer, get stuck in winter, and essentially make it a war of attrition, which they'll lose. Um, so what you'll find and what, what we will look at more next semester when we get to World War II is that if Hitler had listened to his generals, he had a chance to win um, multiple times. Uh, one of the generals he probably should have listened to was Rommel. Rommel was probably one of the best generals in German history. And is kind of, he, he reminds me a lot of someone like a Robert E. Lee in that he's, a, he's kind of a good guy in a bad spot. Um, you know, Lee, if you study him and you know much about him, first of all, Lee didn't believe in slavery. He thought it was a bad decision um, and that it should be gotten rid of. But then he finds himself on the side of the South um, in the war because he's a Virginian. And back then being a lot of Americans back then saw themselves closer aligned to the state that they were from than the actual country, the federal government. And so I would say Rommel's really similar in that Rommel's a, a strong nationalist. He, he never was implicated in anything that was very strongly Nazi. Um, he didn't really love the Nazis. Uh, he tried to at one point assassinate Hitler, which actually got him killed. Um, but Rommel's a lot like that. And we probably would have never been able to invade Europe if Hitler had listened to Rommel, and he doesn't. Um, luckily, we were sending a lot of misinformation to Germany at the time, and Hitler listened to us instead of Rommel. Uh, so that was nice of him, I guess. Anyway, we'll get there more when we get to World War II. Just, a Just get rid of it. Yeah. Uh, now, by the time... Napoleon's done trying to invade Russia. He's going to come back with all of 10,000 men. So he goes in with almost half a million. He comes back with like 10,000 men. So it's a bit of an L. Um, as he's on his way back home, he is intercepted by a British, Russian, Prussian, and Swedish group of forces and is forced to surrender the throne and he will be sent to the island of Elba, now, what is kind of cool about Napoleon is that he was such a strong leader that even as a prisoner on Elba, he creates a local government with him running it, uh, kind of turncoats his guards, and eventually will escape Elba, um, go back to France and have what we call his hundred days, where he becomes the ruler of France again. Um, the rest of Europe decides again to go, okay, great, Napoleon's out. Uh, we're going to have to go take care of him again. The rest of Europe will fight him again. And when they do, uh, eventually the last battle he will lose is called the Battle of Waterloo. Um, and that will be after Waterloo, he'll get sent to St. Helena. Hopefully I'm pointing at St. Helena. Uh, what's that? He gave up his throne in April of 1814. He comes back because Louis XVIII, he finds out that Louis XVIII is universally hated pretty much in France. And so Napoleon thinks, oh, it looks like I might be able to come back and they'll accept me. And he was probably right. Uh, about half of France kind of liked Napoleon. 
because they made they made him strong or he made them strong. Um, but when he comes back, there's a lot of mixed emotion. You'll actually see this um, in some of the readings that you'll look at in regards to Napoleon is that it's a very split decision on people how people feel in regards to Napoleon coming back. Um, some of them really like him. Some of them don't. But the second time he is exiled, he's exiled to St. Helena, which is farther away. Elba's off the coast of France. St. Helena's off the coast of Africa. Um, and eventually he probably dies from something like stomach cancer or something around that. Uh, so that's the best that we know about him after that. Now, why do you think that Europe did not kill Napoleon? Why are they just sending him to islands? Because he was such a strong leader and he was loved by a lot of people. So if they killed him, people would have been really upset. Yeah, you, Europe has been fighting France since 1789. That's 26 years that they've been basically dealing with this French problem. They're, if they kill Napoleon, there's a good chance that the, you're going to see a revolt in France. I mean, France is pretty good at revolting at this point. And so if Napoleon goes... Now you're dealing with, okay, are you going to have Levé en masque try and do this whole thing again? Are you going to have another French Revolution? Like, what is going to uh, come after this? And so they're afraid of that. I think that's why they decide instead to exile him. And it makes some sense. Now, I'm going to switch over to the, uh, the 19th century. And there's a, a guy that I got to introduce for you. Um, and that's William Hegel. William Hegel, who's German. Now, I would in your notes put down, so the dialectic is called the Hegelian dialectic. Oh no, it disappeared. So the Hegelian dialectic, there's an I-A-N in there. Okay, I'm going to try again is his concept of how history works. I tend to agree with a lot of what he says in regards to how history is synthesized or created. Generally, what he believed is that it's kind of this ping pong effect. Remember how I've been talking to you about how history is a lot like a river. It kind of goes back and forth between freedom and security, freedom and security. Hegel is, I, I, I would say I take a lot of my concepts around how the pattern of history works from this Hegelian perspective. Um, what I would, what, what I recognize in him and what I definitely agree with is this concept here. The, the idea that the arc of history is trending towards the consciousness of freedom. Now, just because it's trending that way doesn't mean it's always going that way. Many times people are afraid of too much freedom and want security. And so that's when you get that kind of ping pong effect away from freedom or liberalism. And so I would argue, and Hegel would too, that history is this kind of push and pull away from extremes. Um, you go towards a liberal viewpoint and then people get a little scared and they want some conservatism. You go back to conservatism. People feel like they want some more freedom. They go back to and it's kind of this back and forth, back and forth. Now, the reason that it, I'm going to try to explain this in the course of our study already 
If you go back to the beginning of modern European history, like 1450, and you think of the average person like you in 1450, their day, by the time you're about your age, you're working six days a week, probably on a farm of some, of some sort, on a noble's land or church land. Uh, you go to church on Sunday. Um, you probably cannot, you cannot change social classes. Um, if you're lucky, you might eat one or two meals a day at the most. And you probably didn't leave the town that you were born in. Now, to the person living in 1450, that was freedom. And I realize you're like, that's not really that free. And you're right, it's not. In your world, it's not. But what Hegel says is everyone's consciousness of freedom is growing over time. So as time moves on, each generation has a different awareness of what their freedom is. Think of it from a marginalized group's perspective. Take women. Women in 1450 versus women right around the French Revolution have significantly different consciousnesses of freedom. Even the women that had the consciousness of freedom in the French Revolution are going to, based on the society they lived in, be executed for it, right? Olympe de Gauche writes the Declaration on the Rights of Women and is executed as being anti-revolutionary because she's too extreme. But most women in her period probably would not have thought that the Declaration of the Rights of Women should have been passed. You fast forward to today, and women's consciousness of freedom is much higher, right? So I really like Hegel in that it kind of shows you how, and you guys see this on a daily basis, because society is, because of the internet, because of the closeness of information and how quick you can get it, society is going faster. And so you see these consciousness of freedom becoming a continual thing on a daily basis. Whereas in the past, when things were not as fast, this would be a kind of a slow-moving consciousness of freedom. Um, so I, I think that it's definitely a good way of looking at history. It's a good way of kind of identifying where people are at. And if you are referencing Hegel, um, you want to reference him in, in regards to the Hegelian dialectic. And that's like his idea of the story of how history works, the pattern. Now, um, does anyone know, the, there, there's someone in the 1800s, which is the 19th century, um, that is really popular in the scope of history, who was actually a young Hegelian in, in college. Anyone know who that might be? He's a German philosopher. Are you thinking of Nietzsche? Or? No, Nietzsche is a little later. Karl Marx. So... Karl Marx actually grows up in a position where he will study under Hegel and be part of the young Hegelians. Um, now, Hegel was never as extreme as Marx will eventually become in some of his writing. But Marx is living in a period where he's starting to understand the world from an, a Hegelian perspective. Now, this is going to be important to us later because I'm going to show you what's happening in the 19th century that's important for us. Now, there's two concepts I need you to write down. This is called the dual revolution. Now, the dual revolution is a revolution in two significant areas. One in democracy and one in, uh, I'm trying really hard, but mine's not matching yours. So democracy and capitalism. The easiest way to remember 
how the dual revolution of politics and economics is happening is Merca. Because remember, the two greatest things happened in 1776. The birth of the United States and capitalism. Remember, the wealth of nations is written in 1776. The Declaration of Independence, 1776. It's a really easy way to remember the dual rev revolution. Um, because it's happening in politics and it's happening in economics. I know I'm being a bit facetious. But when it comes to uh, understanding how the world is changing, these are two incredibly transformational concepts where people should have rights and people should make their own economic decisions. These things will change the, the life of people the most for the next 150 years. Uh, capitalism is probably one of the most transformational ideas ever and will change the world probably the most. It's why you get guys like Marx is because they are critical of the ills of capitalism and the byproducts of capitalism. Um, now, those two things are happening. The other thing that's happening is because of the French Revolution and Napoleon specifically, Clemens von Metternich, this guy, hopefully I'm close to him, uh, Metternich is going to become the symbol of conservatism in Europe. Because remember, if you see the French Revolution and Napoleon as a movement towards liberalism, which it was, and then a total failure, which it was, Metternich becomes the, hey, we are going to get rid of the liberalism and go back to a conservative Europe the way it used to work. Remember that democracy in Europe up until this point has not been very successful. The British tried it. It wasn't great. They ended up with a constitutional monarchy, which is a version of democracy, but it's not really the democracy that we're thinking of in the 20th century. The French tried it, really screwed it up, and then ended up with a Napoleon. And the liberal ideas of the French Revolution grow with Napoleon as he takes over the rest of Europe. And so Metternich is going, how do we fix this problem? We get rid of liberalism. That is the death of Europe. And so he decides that, that conservative revolt against liberalism, which is this age of conservatism, is going to reestablish order within Europe. Um, this is incredibly important because he's going to start removing the people that Napoleon had put in power and instead go back to what he considered a balance of power in Europe. And in doing so, creates what we will call legitimacy. So that if you are a king or queen, it's because you have a legitimate claim to the throne, not because Napoleon decided you should be in charge. The goal was that you don't have a group within Europe that's too big that could take over other groups, but rather you have a bunch of smaller groups that have this balance of power. They check each other. It's traditional. Um, that way, if you do have conflict, the kings and queens can work it out and you don't have a bunch of war. Remember that democracy ends up becoming synonymous with violence early on. And many of the democratic people pushing for democracy believe that it should be so. I mean, look at Robespierre's, uh, his justification of the use of terror. Look at Jefferson saying the tree of liberty must be refreshed from the time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. No one was saying democracy was going to be nonviolent. It was violent. 
in its inception. So for Metternich, conservatism wasn't violent and was less violent than uh, the liberal democracies. And so that becomes his calling card in a way. Now, the other thing that happens is the Holy Alliance, which is where Russia, Austria, and Prussia link together to decide if there was a liberal revolution in their country, they would help each other out in stomping it out and getting rid of it. This is going to be important for us later because even though Clemens von Metternich is kind of that symbol of conservatism, by the time you get to 1848, two things happen. One, you see the Communist Manifesto show up. And two, you see a bunch of revolutions that all fail. Because the 1848 revolutions, as one historian put it, was the year that history failed to turn. It, you have all of the things primed for, for there to be change. They all revolt at the same time all over Europe, and they all fail for a variety of reasons. I would say the biggest reason is they're a bunch of students. They're a bunch of poor college kids. And, and generally, poor revolts don't work. Um, that's one of their issues. The other issue was it was a lot like the, uh, the Wall Street movement. Remember the... Um, March on Wall Street slash, what's that? Right. So there, there was this issue um, where you had a bunch of people in the United States like marching on Wall Street. We are the what? We are the 99%, that whole thing. If you asked many of those people, hey, what do you want? They would all give you a different answer. And, and the problem with a revolution where nobody can give you a singular answer is that you don't really have a revolution. What you have is a bunch of people that are upset. And you don't have anything to, to hang your hat on. Like, oh, we want to do this. If you asked a lot of people during that Wall Street movement, hey, what would be a positive outcome? They couldn't tell you. Or if they did tell you, it would be a bunch of different stuff, which is not a, a, a revolution. Revolutions that succeed have something to hang their hat on. Like, this is what we are. This is what we're changing. Um, look at the Russian Revolution. Look at the French Revolution. Look at the American Revolution. We all had a common en enemy. And we all had a, a similar, like, this is what our outcome is going to be. Um, if you don't have those things, you tend to not have a revolution that's going to work. And 1848 was a good example. Now, last thing here, and I'm going to go back to Karl Marx here for a second. When Karl Marx was a kid, his dad was actually arrested because of these. Um, because his dad was like out at a bar with a bunch of friends drinking and was very drunk and started singing a revolutionary song from the French Revolution, which was brought to Germany from when uh, Napoleon had taken over most of Europe. And at, at times, bars, especially you think about like the Star Spangled Banners, those are bar songs that eventually become popular. Well, some of those revolutionary songs were bar songs that people would sing when they were drunk. And at this time, it was illegal to be liberal. So if you sang a revolutionary song you could get thrown in jail. And so Karl Marx's dad gets thrown in jail by these soldiers that hear them singing this. And it sh I think it really shapes Karl Marx's mindset going forward that, hey, even if I disagree with the government, I'm going to get thrown in jail. Um, it, he, he is starting to become himself very aware of his consciousness of freedom or lack of freedom um, in his society. So for us... Uh, Metternich is an incredibly important person because he becomes known as that symbol of conservatism. Um, ironically, the only real positive that comes out of the 1848 revolutions is the removal of Metternich. That's about it. 
Metternich is uh, fleeing Austria, fleeing Vienna because of it, uh, and he doesn't come back. Um, but other than that, the 1848 revolutions were pretty, pretty terrible. Um, okay, last thing is that I'm going to give you a quick broad overview, and then we'll end there. When we talk about the French Revolution and the Napoleonic era, what we're really talking about is an expression of liberalism and trying to understand how that liberalism is going to affect Europe. It's an expression of the Enlightenment. And in a lot of ways, for the age of conservatism, is a failure of the Enlightenment. That, you know what? These were great ideas. They don't work. And that's what the age of conservatism will say. Now, it takes a long time to get to a place where Europe is ready to do democracy in a more modern sense. And so I think that one thing that we can learn from this, looking back, is that anytime you are trying to export something like democracy, like we did in Iraq or like what we tried to do in Afghanistan, it's difficult to give someone democracy and have it work overnight. You have to like build democracy over time, build the concepts within someone. Going back to Rousseau's version where you have to create civic virtue through that kind of education system and teach people and train people how to live in democratic processes. If you don't do that, you're not going to have a successful democracy. You're going to have a shouting match and then the guy with the biggest gun is going to take over, which is generally what happens in most democracies that fail is that you have the guy that's the strongest military will take over and it'll become a military dictatorship. All right, that'll be it for now. And then we will jump into uh, the 19th century when we get back from break. 